Hi, I'm Andrew Dubber. I'm the director of Music Tech Fest, and this is the MTF Podcast. Your ears are amazing, and your brain, that's amazing too. Sound, and particularly how we perceive sound in three-dimensional space, is this incredible phenomenon that we kind of take for granted a little bit. But when you stop to think about it, as Agnieszka Roginska does, well, it'll blow your mind, and maybe even become something of an obsession. Agnieszka is a professor in the Music Technology Department at NYU, and this year she's also the president of the AES, the Audio Engineering Society, and her specialism is immersive 3D audio for games, for VR, for movies, for music, and for a whole lot of stuff you might not have thought of, from the military to traffic management, educational psychology to bird migration. I spoke to Agnieszka from her lockdown in Woodstock, and even though it was just a Zoom call, she managed to make it seem pretty immersive all the same. This is Professor President Agnieszka Roginska. Enjoy. Agnieszka Roginska, thanks so much for joining us for the MTF podcast today. Thank you for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. You're uh, you're sitting. I can see you're sort of surrounded by nature. You're not uh, surrounded by studio equipment. Uh, I take it that uh, you're in lockdown, but not uh, in New York itself. Yeah, not unfortunately not. So normally I uh, I would be in New York City in Manhattan, in Greenwich Village. But um, given COVID nineteen, we we left the city a couple of months ago, and we've been isolated, completely isolated, in the woods of Woodstock, New York where it's lovely here, surrounded by trees and deer and uh, and wild turkeys. Fantastic. And uh, I guess you get to spend your time being busy, being the president of AES remotely. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that means and what AES is? Sure. That's, that's one of the hats that I wear. Yes, it's the president of uh, the Audio Engineering Society. Mm-hmm. Um, the AES is the largest organization of professional um, audio people and music technology, including producers, recording engineers, um, people who are interested in signal processing, acoustics, gaming, spatial audio, immersive sound. The list is very, very, very long. It's a it's a society that has been around for over seventy five years, mm-hmm. and you know traditionally it was started uh, for people who were professionals in the field of audio engineering, which you know back then was very limited to to recording, broadcast, and so on, and uh, and over the past almost eight decades now, the, the society has truly evolved to, to envelop the broader meaning of audio engineering, which of course includes gaming now and you know the industry is growing at a, a tremendous rate and so is the meaning of the audio engineering society so it's a it's a society it's an organization that has over 12,000 members worldwide mm-hmm. in fact we're in all continents except antarctica okay and we have student members and uh, uh, from a very young age in fact to to um, professionals who've been in this industry for for a very long time and uh, some of them have retired and they're giving back to the to the community and it's a it's a really wonderful community of people who come together for the sole purpose of the fact that they're interested in audio and they work in audio and that is their passion and that is their work. And, and so we have uh, both student sections and professional sections around the world, over 120, uh, much more than growing um, every every month, every year. Um, and it's a way for the community to come together and connect with professionals. And that means different things to different people, right? So if you're a student, it's a wonderful way for you to 
connect to people who are professionals in this field so that you can learn. Mm-hmm. You can learn things that are beyond everything that you're learning in your in your academic institution and connect with professionals at a very early age and and start to network and and learn from all these wonderful people who are around you. Uh, if you're at a, a if you're just graduating from college or you're in in your early part of the career, it's a it's an amazing way to to again to network and to get integrated into the community to find job opportunities and to to really learn about what the industry is about. If you're a little bit later on mid career or so, um, as you know, the industry keeps changing at a tremendous rate, and I That's think it's sure. faster and faster yeah. as as we as we move on with time. And you absolutely need to stay relevant. You need to keep learning. It's not something that you learn how to do your your craft once mm-hmm. and then you're set for life. You really need to keep learning, educating yourself. And so the AES provides you with this infrastructure, with this with this community, with this education that takes you and helps you develop helps you develop as a professional and helps you develop uh, your, your expertise and evolve as an audio engineer. And then, of course, if you're later on in your career, it's also a great way if you're you know, in, in your retirement or thinking about retirement. It's a wonderful way to, to give back to the community and, and keep the connection with the students or, or young uh, professionals who are just starting out. And it's a, it's a really wonderful way to keep in contact with, uh, with the community. So... The AES is just you know this this uh, very large community of people who are around the world, and we're here to help people connect mm-hmm. and help people learn. And education, I would say, is at the forefront of what the Audio Engineering Society is about. And of course, there's you know a whole uh, aspect to it that deals with standards and setting standards for for the audio. And you know we we know about all these standards that the AES has set throughout the the past many many decades. Sure. So I've been I am the president this year. So this year from January first. So it's a one year gig. Yeah, it's a, it's a one year gig, and you're voted in presumably. Yes, yes. So I was voted in. And in fact, uh, the, the way society is organized, there's always three presidents uh, at any one period of time. There's one president who is the president-elect, which means that's the person who will be the acting president next year. There's the acting president. So that's my year now as acting president. Mm-hmm. And then there's the past president, who is the president, who was president last year. And, you know, the three of us kind of uh, work together and um, with together with the board of directors mm-hmm. and also... Um, um, with the board of governors, who are representatives from um, the, the leadership around the world, and also the AES has a, a staff, a full-time staff, um, an executive director, and uh, people who, who work with with Colleen Harper um, to run the society from an infrastructure perspective. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're also a professor. I am indeed a professor. I'm a professor of music technology at uh, New York University in New York City, uh-huh. focusing on 3D audio particularly. <laughs> Yeah, so that's what I've been doing for the past, uh, gosh, about 25 years now. I've been in the field of 3D audio, which, as you can imagine, looked a lot different 25 years ago than it does today. What did uh, 3D audio look like 25 years ago? 25 years ago, you know, I, I would say that about 25 years ago, so in the so yeah, about in the mid 90s was when the when 3D audio started to gain momentum. Mm-hmm. I think it was the first time, um, although you know. Immersive sound, 3D audio, dates back to, to prehistoric times. So, you know, our ancestors, when they lived in caves, yeah. and when they were, uh, no, well, during the day, they would be more or less in an anechoic, in a free field environment. So, 
um, when they went back to their caves, you know, they were just absolutely mesmerized by the sounds that they heard. Sure. And there's a lot of evidence that points to um, you know the, the drawings that we now find in, in caves that date back to, to prehistoric times. A lot of them are in acoustically important places. A lot of them are in places where the acoustics are just wonderful. Hmm. And you know, you can imagine you go into these caves. You don't have a flashlight. Yeah. You don't. You don't have any. You don't have your iPhone that you can. Guide, so you you really just have the sound of your voice to to guide you most often. So when you come into these areas where the acoustics are just so uh, amazing and enchanting and magical, mm-hmm. that's where what that's where, you know where they spend a lot of their time. So immersive sound dates way way back. Great space for storytelling. I would have thought as well. Yeah. For that uh, that sort of context. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, it's got a it's got a history, but uh, uh, the technology of three D audio. I mean, I think of things like quadraphonic sound, I guess, in the in the sixties. Um, but then, where were, where are we at when you come into the picture? So, so in the mid '90s, it's where, as I, as I mentioned, so 3D sound. This is where 3D sound really starts to gain momentum, specifically for uh, gaming, mm-hmm. right? So, but this is where we have our um, uh, our sound blaster card. You know, the, the computers are still not powerful enough to do any kind of uh, any kind of meaningful real time 3D audio processing. Most of the most of the CPU is spent on graphics uh, back then, but you know, but but. 3D audio gains a little bit of the of the importance, and this is where we start to develop a lot of the algorithms. First of all, we start to gain a much greater understanding of how it is that we hear in in a three dimensional space. How is it that we only have two ears? Mm-hmm. We only have really two channels as as uh, on our heads, but yet we can um, tell where sounds are coming from from the front and the back and up and down and near and far. And uh, it was during that time in the 80s and the 90s that we we are doing a lot of research about the fundamentals of space, spatial hearing. And this is really important because it's important for us to understand first how we hear in a three-dimensional space if we have any possibility of uh, recreating uh, these kinds of illusions and simulations um, synthetically. So, you know, we're doing a lot of research and computers are starting to become a little bit more powerful. We are also starting to understand that we can measure the filtering characteristics of human bodies, these things called, you know how we have, of course, the head that's a certain shape, but we have these funky flappy things on the on each side of the of the head, our, our ears, our, mm-hmm. our, what are called our pinnas. And, um, and those contain the the acoustical fingerprint of each location. And, you know, we start to realize this and we start to realize that we are able to hear sounds in the three-dimensional space because our bodies are basically these uh, very complex, directionally dependent equalizers. And so when a sound comes from a specific direction, it puts an acoustic fingerprint based on the shape and size of your head and specifically your ears. And we also start to realize that everybody's ears and heads are unique and everybody has a different way of uh, a different acoustic fingerprint for each one of those locations. So, you know, we start to realize that we need to be um, mindful of what kind of filtering we do so that your experience of 3D sound is excellent but it's going to be different than my experience of 3D sound because we have these different characteristics. Mm-hmm. And of course, because machines are not powerful enough, in the 90s, we're doing a lot of research of, well, how can we, how can we make this so that everybody has a good experience of 3D audio, especially in gaming, which was you know, a really very important application back then. 
Um, so that's where we were in the mid nineties. So I did, um, when I was, uh, so I did a PhD at Northwestern university and this is basically what I was studying is how to, how to acoustically measure these HRTFs or head related transfer functions and superimpose them to any sound to create the illusion of hearing sound in a three dimensional environment. And is this what we call binaural audio? Exactly. Yeah. So binaural audio, um, is a, uh, the, the, the true definition of binaural audio is a two-channel um, sound, two-channel two audio that has on its superimposed spatial characteristics. So you're not, it's not stereo, although it's just two channels, but it's two channels that has these acoustically superimposed characteristics that give you information of not just what sounds you're listening to, but where the sounds are in azimuth elevation and also distance. Right. Okay. And what's the I mean, apart from being able to replicate the sounds that are around us, what are the practical implications of that? How do you then apply that research that you're doing? So the um, so the the applications are manifold. I mean, right now we're really starting to use binaural sound um, basically everywhere, and especially now with the emergence of of uh, VR and AR in a in a much more consumer based way. Because you know VR has been around for again for decades. When I started doing three D audio, we were doing VR applications as well. Though VR in the nineties looked very different than it does today. Sure. Um, so so the the applications are manifold. They're um, you know still in gaming. You know very very much. So in the music, we're starting to see a lot of applications in binaural sound, but just immersive sound. Mm -hmm. And and I want to make a distinction between binaural sound and the the overall def definition of immersive sound because binaural is something that's very specific to two channels with spatial characteristics superimposed on um, on the sound. Which is whereas immersive audio can mean different things to different people. Immersive audio can mean um, an, uh, an immersive experience for somebody who's uh, a recording engineer and who is recording a, a concert, a, a, an orchestra concert, um, and uh, creates the impression of you being in that concert space. That's very different than somebody who's playing a first-person shooter game and is in an interactive environment right. where the sound has to change as your position and what you're doing changes. Right. And that's also very different than if you're um, doing an, an application in education, for example, and you, and you want to superimpose virtual objects so that students can learn better about the topic that they're learning about. Um, and there has to be a component of interaction. Maybe you're now in an augmented reality space where it has, it has its own sound complexities, where now you have to re be very mindful of how you integrate real objects, real sound objects, with a virtual sound object mm. and how they blend together. So the application itself becomes very, very important. Um, before I came to, to New York University, I was working more in what's called the mission critical space, which is applications of, um, in my case, it was, it was audio and specifically 3D audio. But for, for military applications, I was working a lot with the Army and the Navy and NASA uh, for various applications of 3D sound and how they can be used to augment the the situation or, or improve the situational awareness and augment how a person perceives the information or how a person uh, perhaps um, has the better ability to listen to multiple communication lines coming coming to them at the same time. Mm. So depending on what the application is, you really have to be thinking about how what kind of technology you use and what kind of manipulations you have to use to make the experience meaningful for the application that you're working with. 
You've got a, a wonderful soundtrack of a bird that's uh, that's tweeting along with you in the background. And it, and it makes me think about the quality of the microphones that we have available to us in everyday life. Because the fact that I can sit here in the north of Sweden and listen to a bird in your garden in Woodstock uh, is, is phenomenal. And that it sounds so clear and so bright. Are microphones getting better? And particularly uh, for things like uh, immersive audio and, and 3D sound, is, it, is the technology improving for recording that? Well, it, it depends what you mean by improving, right? So there are certainly technical advances that are being made to, we now have microphones that are, um, I'm specifically thinking of um, uh, microphones that have uh, high order ambisonics, microphones that are able to capture sounds from multiple directions at the same time. We now have these technologies and the quality of them is getting better and better and better and improving. Mm-hmm. We also certainly have a much greater um, availability of the types of microphones that are around for the applications that we're working with. So for example, in the in the past few years, Ambisonics, as you may know, has made a tremendous emergence. And it's not because Ambisonics is new. It's been around since the 70s, since Michael mm-hmm. Gerzon came up with this idea. But uh, we now have found a very important application for it, which is virtual reality, augmented reality, needing to have representation of sounds from all around us. So now, of course, we have a much greater abundance of uh, first order ambisonic microphones, higher order ambisonic microphones, things that we didn't have in the past. And the quality is really excellent. And I would say one of the things that um, I am very excited about is to see these kinds of technologies, these kind of um, uh, professional grade technologies becoming more available and cheaper to the consumer so that now accessibility is much better than it ever has been. And what does that mean? That means that uh, people who in the, in the past would never have access to these amazing technologies and, and these microphones, unless let's say you were a professional recording engineer and you had your you know a huge studio, you wouldn't have access to those. But now the accessibility is such that anyone, you know, kids in elementary school are doing recordings using ambisonic microphones. Hmm. They may not understand fully how it works, but it doesn't matter because they can experiment and be creative with these technologies and learn about them so that they can do uh, things that otherwise they wouldn't be able to do. So I'm really excited about the fact that the accessibility is is there now, and certainly the quality of the microphones and the quality of the, the microphones and the headphones and technologies has been improving at a great rate. Fantastic. Just before the coronavirus took off, uh, we were very involved in uh, a, a project about uh, sound design for urban environments and how we could reimagine sound and how sound is used uh, with the IoT space, with uh, sensors, with you know how sound affects the city, but also how we can redesign the sound of the city. And since then, of course, cities have shut down and they sound totally different. Are we going to have the opportunity to rethink how cities should sound or how they should use sound as we come out of this, do you think? Well, it's interesting because there are a lot of people who are doing um, research on on the sounds of cities. In fact, um, we at NYU have a very large project called Sonic, S-O-N-Y-C, that um, that captures sounds around the city 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Mm-hmm. And this came out, uh, and the original uh, seed of that project was a... Um, uh, a mission from our, one of our for, former mayors in New York City who understood that, that noise is a big problem. Noise is a big problem in a lot of cities. And in order to mitigate noise, we're f- we first have to understand it. 
And so that project was started. It's an NSF-funded grant now. And we have uh, literally hundreds of sensors, microphone sensors, scattered around the city, and they pick, pick up the sound. And um, so one of my parts uh, and related to this project is a project called City City Tones. And City Tones aims at capturing sounds of city, kind of like think of a room tone, where you want to have the sound of, uh, of an environment or, or of a nature environment or an urban environment, but where you don't want to have a lot of point sources. So I've been collecting through City Tones, we've been collecting sounds from all over the world, both nature sounds and urban sounds, and um, creating a large library that we use as the backdrop of virtual experiences that we want to create. But what's really interesting is now we have the ability to compare and contrast the sounds that we recorded, let's say, a year ago and what they sound like today. Mm -hmm. And the difference in, in places, especially in urban environments like New York City or, or like Paris and other large cities that have an enormous amount of sound normally, um, those sounds are gone. Like those, <laughs> it's so quiet. It's almost eerie. And uh, you think about like how humans, what a difference humans make in the noise level of these cities. And so I think it's, this is a very interesting time for researchers to be capturing sounds and to be looking at, well, n not just sounds, but to be capturing data uh, from various sensors, um, but especially sounds to see how, what the human impact factor is. And how we manage to to change the soundscape of our environments. And are we able to do that deliberately in terms of uh, deciding what cities should sound like, particularly as electric vehicles start to uh, become more prominent, uh, and the actual the, theoretically the noise floor drops? Just quieter doesn't seem like a particularly ambitious goal. Whereas designing the sound from scratch and thinking what should the city sound like seems like something that might be an interesting project to tackle. Yeah, it's, I think it's a very interesting project um, for for somebody who wants to take it on. I do know that you know um, quieter is better for a lot of things. Yeah. Quieter is better for, for example, there's been a lot of studies that were that proved that, uh, for example, children don't work don't learn as well when they're in a, in a noisy environment. When their schools are in a noisy environment, the the there's a big correlation between their test scores and and the noise. Mm. So I think that there's something to be said about uh, thinking about how loud our cities should be and how much exposure we have. And this is not just coming, coming from cars and the noises around us, but think about how loud it is. Like in New York City, when you're in the subway, it is loud. It is loud. Yep. It's like 90 plus dB SBL. And to have long-term exposure to that can cause significant damage. Mm. As far as NYU is concerned and the, the music tech program, what is it you group together as music tech? What is music tech at NYU? It's a great question. I think that music technology, um, every every institution has a slightly different definition and a slightly different flavor of music technology. So at NYU, music technology is certainly influenced by where we are. So the fact that we are in New York City, we are um, driven by, and we also take advantage of everything that is around the city, including all the studios, the entertainment industry, and so on. Um, at NYU, uh, music technology, which is a program that's been around for you know, over 45 years, and again, something that the, the content of this program has changed tremendously over those years. In fact, when it started, it was uh, the music and music uh, business and technology program. And okay. since then, the two programs separated. Now we 
we have a separate music business program and we have a separate music technology program. Mm. But at, uh, at NYU Music Technology, we have several pillars of, of education that we focus on. And we completely underline to all our students that if you want to be in this field, you have to know what is the fundamental and what is under the hood. Because the, the, the industry will change. And I say to, to all the students who are coming into the program, I say, you know what? I guarantee you that in four years, when you graduate from this program, the industry will look different. <laughs> there will be another branch of music technology that has appeared or, you know, the industry will have changed in one way or another. And, it's a, and you have to be ready for, for this change. And you have to be ready to continue learning and to continue evolving even after you graduate. So what we under, underline in music technology at NYU is that you need to have a very strong foundation and basis of knowledge. You have to know the fundamentals. You know, you have to know what, what is sound, how does sound behave? So you have to know fundamentals of, of acoustics and signal processing and electronic music. You have to understand the history. Mm-hmm. We are because we are in the department of music, music and performing arts professions, all music technology majors have to take the same classes as all other music majors. So you have to take theory classes, music theory classes, music history classes, ensembles, and so on, so that you develop your ears as a musician, so that you understand how to hear and what to listen for. And um, But beyond having that, that foundation, um, which you know, includes acoustics, signal processing, electronics, so all our students, uh, undergraduate students, learn how to build circuits and both analog circuits and digital circuits. And they learn not just, for example, what an equalizer does, but how is an equalizer built? And they built these equalizers so that they have a much better understanding and affinity for what they're working with. But beyond that, uh, we are we are kind of um, focused on, on five pillars of research. One of them is, of course, recording and production. So everything that, that entails, looking at recording techniques, reproduction techniques. Right now, we're doing a lot of um, recording techniques um, that involve immersive sound mm-hmm. and that capture and reproduce recordings in an immersive environment. And of course, I would uh, put in that broadcast and live sound and, uh, and max, uh, mastering and mixing and everything that goes along with recording production. Another one is electronic music. And electronic music, not just from a compositional aspect, which is, of course, very important. So um, creating sounds, our students still work with analog technology. Mm -hmm. They spend some time in analog studios working with analog synthesizers and analog tape. So, you know, working with analog um, technology and and to, to create electronic music, but also from the other side of electronic music, which means building the controllers that um, electronic musicians work with. So, so uh, building interfaces um, and to control music, to control the performance, to control the experience of the either the composer or the, the, the participant or the listener. Another very strong b- branch of research is uh, immersive sound, um, which is my main area of, of research. And this involves everything from basic research on how we hear sounds in three-dimensional space to applying this and creating 3D environments, to doing sound design from gaming, to create VR and AR and mixed reality experiences, to creating experiences I've been that, uh, for example, I've been working a lot with um, collaborative music making, where you have musicians who are in different locations, where you bring them together in an environment where they, where they share this environment, that they can make music together seamlessly. Just like if you and I are in the same space, 
we should be able to make music in that same in that same kind of capacity. Uh, and another uh, strong research area is a music information retrieval, or in general, music informatics, which means extracting data and extracting information from music or generally speaking from sounds so for example if you go to spotify and uh you know you say i like this song play me another song that sounds like this song so understanding what are the underlying principles of of music harmonic rhythmic etc all these underlying principles of what makes one song sound like another song or generally speaking um extracting data and understanding from just the audio data to identify sounds or to identify specific bird species or specific types of uh, car sounds. And then the last pillar is music cognition. So it's it's not about specifically what we hear, but how we hear it, how we perceive it. How is it that music derives all this emotion in us and creates all this emotional um, uh, component? So those are kind of like the main pillars of music technology at NYU. And it's a large program. We have a, an undergraduate program a master's program and a PhD program and total of about uh, 250 students now. Right. And I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but what do they do when they finish? Um, they, so some of them go on to, uh, to work at companies such as Apple, Dolby, uh, Google, um, and they're signal processing engineers, or they work on new products. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them go on to be recording and, and mixing and post-production engineers and uh, either are absorbed by, by studios or they, they start their own ventures and they're very successful. We have composers who also um, become an artists and installation artists. Um, we have some students who go on and uh, go on into academia and especially, you know, the PhD students. I would say that um, a lot of them go on into to being academics and professors. Uh, or they are uh, doing research at uh, at large companies. So um, because the the breadth is so wide, so is the where the students end up after they graduate from NYU. Right. But they're all very successful. And it's interesting because uh, Music Tech Fest came out of the MIR community, and it came very much from uh, Michaela Magus, who was the founder of uh, of MTF, uh, was the scientific director for a, a roadmap for the European Commission for the future of that field. And so a lot of that community ended up within Music Tech Fest, but it's really interesting to see how that has all sort of shaped and evolved because I guess sort of eight, eight to ten years ago, it was very much about recommender systems for, for playlists and, and those sorts of things. But uh, now you're talking about, you know, bird identification, and uh, and other things. What other sort of um, pathways have come out of that sort of area? For music information retrieval, I think that, well, so a good example is how we're gaining a lot of understanding about um, urban sounds and urban environments and specifically what constitutes an urban soundscape and what kind of sounds we can identify. And this has been very informative. If we want to mitigate noise, we first have to figure out what is causing noise. And, you know, sound is one of those things that, once it happens, it's gone. Yeah. And so it's 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 not like a, any any other event. Um, and so in in New York City, we we've been gaining a lot of understanding of what what constitutes the New York City soundscape. And um, right now, we are just starting another project that will that will help us inform not just what sounds we're hearing, but where are they coming from, 
and how are they moving so that we can create trajectories of these soundscapes and, and cars and people and even migrations of birds and which direction are they moving mm. so that we can be better informed at mitigating these noises. When you say migrations of birds, do you mean tracking them with uh, situated microphones in the field? That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. So one of my colleagues, uh, Juan Bello, is working on a, on a project that specifically focuses on that. This tracking bird migrations where you have distributed ne networks of microphones and um, you can um, identify the sound of the birds, but also keep track of the, the particular species of birds and how they travel through space. Wow. I have to ask, how did you get started in this? Uh, I mean, what was the first sort of uh, path to the world of audio? I mean, was it mixtapes? Was it, uh, you know, listening to the radio? It's it's funny because I um, I sometimes ask myself the question, how did I end up here? Uh -huh. um, so my, my first path, so I'm a, I'm a classical pianist and um, I, uh, I have been a musician all my life. And when I went to university to McGill, I started studying piano performance. Mm -hmm. And this was in the very, very early 90s. And um, during that time, McGill, and, and still does, they have an incredible sound recording program and a music technology program. Back then, it was called Computer Applications in Music. Uh -huh. And so I became curious in this these computer applications in music. And of course, back then, a lot of it was, was analog. It was just really the beginning of, of digital music technologies. But I became fascinated with it. And um, I ended up doing a double major in piano performance and computer applications in music. And what that meant is, and I had to learn to program. In fact, my first programming class was assembler. And I learned to build compilers. And, you know, we started using uh, tapes and doing electronic music and running uh, working with uh, Moog synthesizers and running tape loops around the studio. And I thought that was like the coolest thing ever. Right. And so I decided to continue studying in this space. And I ended up going to, to NYU for my master's. Mm -hmm. And when I got to NYU, my first intention was to study sound recording because I, I was totally fascinated by it. But when I got to NYU, I learned purely by accident about the field of 3D sound. And it was one of those moments that you know the angels were singing and i thought okay that's it yeah that's all i want to do and i literally lived and breathed day and night learning about 3d audio and programming 3d audio it was the the um the beginning of uh, computers that could handle real-time 3d audio processing and that's what i ended up doing and so i continued um, to study this at, at northwestern and um, I just dove deeper and deeper, first working more in the military space. And then um, now being at NYU, uh, I'm working with a lot of very talented students. And um, I'm just incredibly passionate about this field. And the more I learn about it, the more passionate I become. It sounds like it. I mean, when you when I think of 3D audio, I think of multiple speaker arrays. I think of, you know, 36 speakers at different heights and, and, uh, and angles surrounding me. What do I need to listen to uh, immersive audio at home? So, um, well, you know, so, so right now, I think that the world of immersive sound is evolving at a, at a, at a very rapid rate from, from different, different parts. Um, so you, to, to answer your question about what do you need to listen to immersive sound at home, of course, you can, you can experience immersive sound just by having two channels, right? Because really, that's all you need. What, what matters is what flows into your ears. Okay. But, but immersive sound isn't just about what's going through your ears mm -hmm. so sound is also experienced haptically vibration vibration right when you're sitting in a movie theater and 
the bomb goes off or the train passes by and you have that, you know, that vibration coming from the sub and you, ex- you experience sound with your entire body. Uh-huh. What is very exciting about right now and specifically about home theater is that we're getting to have technologies that allow you to customize your experience so that you can listen to your movie. And I'm thinking of Dolby Atmos and Peg H, which are um, which support what's called object-based audio, where sounds are not just mixed as they have been traditionally for a specific channel reproduction, which means that, okay, in the, in the past, when you mixed for stereo, you expected the person to have two loudspeakers mm-hmm. and they would be listening in stereo. Or if you're mixing something for 5.1 for surround sound, you expect that person to have a five channel set up in, in wherever they are and they're listening over the five channels. But what's happening now with object-based audio is we're tr- where we have the possibility of kind of like half baking a mix, right? So we, we produce the mix, but every sound becomes an object and becomes an object that has data associated with it, which means that when you're listening to a movie in your home, and let's say it's really late at night and you don't want to bother your neighbors and you don't really care about those those bombs going off very loud. What you really care about is the dialogue. You now have the possibility to customize and adjust the level of your mix on the fly depending on how you want to hear it. Hmm. And this is very exciting, right? Because it means that you can customize your experience. You can customize it too if, if let's say you have a, a hearing impairment. And again, you want to just focus on the dialogue. You have the ability to do that. But what it also means is that if you have a five channel set up at home, you have surround sound at home, you can listen to it on five channels. If you have 36 channels, as it sounds like you do, Andrew, <laughs> uh, you can listen to it over 36 channels because you have now the ability to mix, do the final mix on the fly. So it's it's really a very exciting time for immersive sound. Hmm. So are the same kinds of advances happening in sound that are happening in vision, for instance? Because I know I have a lot of, you know, Skype calls and Zoom calls and those sorts of things. And and the picture quality is often a lot better than the sound quality in those sorts of things. Is there a, a sort of a disparity in terms of attention being paid to these things? Or is that just sort of my experience of the world? Yeah, I think it depends on what community you talk to, right? So if you're talking to the to the vision community, you know, of course there's amazing graphics advancements happening, and we see this with uh, with renderings of avatars, and and we we see, uh, especially with computer graphics, how far we've come. Mm-hmm. And of course, like we wouldn't be able to do this uh, 20 years ago, or the quality of what we're do- being able to do today would be a much lesser than it is today. So sure. even for com- consumer grade communication, the quality of the visuals is increasing. But if you talk to the audio community, I would say the same is true. We're, we're doing tremendous advances in the rendering of audio, in, uh, in, in audio communication, where it, we're now starting to go beyond just the content that we're hearing, especially for communication. It's not just about hearing the dialogue, but it's about also the sound quality that, that we're hearing for the fact that you can hear birds and a dog as, yeah. I, <laughs> as I'm talking to you right now. I mean, just think about that. And we're separated by thousands and thousands of miles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. So are the affordances of the recording technology having an impact on what sorts of music are being made? I always, you know, my philosophy is that um, technology and art go hand in hand. 
and uh, one has to drive the other and vice versa. I think because the technology is evolving, it is giving new ideas and new forms of expression and creativity to artists. And artists are taking these technologies and running away with it and doing things that they normally, they wouldn't be able to do before. But vice versa, because now art, artists are creating new ways of making things, technology is catching up. So it's this constant evolution moving forward. Technology goes forward, art, uh, creativity goes forward, and so on and so on. And so I think that we, we are doing different things that we were not able to do before. Uh, and you know, even thinking about just now the specific situation that we're faced in, where people don't get together as much as they used to. Right. So now we have to be able to make music together across distances. Mm -hmm. We have to be able to uh, like at NYU and in, in our department, all the ensembles, you know, orchestras, uh, jazz ensembles, percussion ensembles, everything had to be taken um, online. So now we have to be creative. At how do we create music together to make it sound good and perhaps create new forms of music that not just um, allow us to do the things that we've been able to do before, but. Let's think of new ways of making music. Let's let's use this. Let's use this in a way that we wouldn't be able to use this before. The fact that we we cannot get together anymore, which means that we can get together in a remote setting with people that we normally would never get together before and make make, make music before. So now the geographical boundaries are gone. But but latency must be an issue for sure. For sure, latency is always is always the, probably the biggest obstacle in in making music across distances and. Um, and in fact, we do. We're doing a lot of research in this. At uh, I have one of my main research projects is called the the Holodeck. It's an NSF funded grant, and where we're building the Holodeck, just like Star Trek. If you're a Star Trek fan, where it's an environment that can become any environment, and it's also an environment that can um, uh, that is a collaborative environment. People who are across distances who cannot collaborate on using common objects. So we talk about latency a lot. Luckily, within NYU, within our um, our uh, campus or, or in the city, we have this what we call the triangle between uh, Washington Square Village and the park, Brooklyn and the medical center. We have an incredibly fast network where the latency is on the order of magnitude of one millisecond between the three. So, you know, we have basically no latency and we can collaborate across the distance. Uh, but of course, if we're collaborating with our other campuses, such as our campus in Shanghai or Abu Dhabi or other institutions, um, we have this obstacle. And there's, you know, there's a physical barrier. There's the speed of light, where you know that's that's an obstacle. And I'm sure somebody will solve that problem someday. But right now, we have, in the best circumstances, we have the speed of light. So latency is always a problem. But here's where where musicality and composition and creativity can come in. You can create music and you can compose music that uh, reduces this this um, this percept this obstacle where it's music that can be under latency circumstances can still be enjoyable or perhaps there are some composers that use the latency and in fact make it a feature in their compositions and this is where I mean like uh, that creativity and artists and composers use the technology in ways that sometimes we never even would think they should be used and make it into a new form of art and a new form of expression. If I'm somebody listening to this podcast, and I think these are really, really interesting conversations, and I want to have more of these sorts of conversations, you, you kind of have an answer to that. You have a conference coming up. 
Yeah, we have the Audio Engineering Society convention coming up next week. So it's from June 2nd through the 5th. Mm -hmm. And normally it was supposed to be in Vienna. So this convention was supposed to be in Vienna and Austria. Of course, we were not able to do this physically this year. So this year it's all virtual and um, anybody can register for the for the convention and has will have access to literally dozens and dozens of sessions and paper sessions and hear from the experts in the field of audio engineering. And I would say that, you know, the broader sense of audio engineering, there will be a lot of sessions that we'll be talking about immersive sound and gaming and applications in VR and and recording and reproduction. So there's um, a lot of very exciting sessions going on. So um, to find out more about it, you go to AES.org and you can be directed directly to the to the convention in Vienna next week. And obviously you'll be uh, presenting or keynoting? I will be presenting, yes. So I'll be part of the opening ceremonies. I'm also uh, going to be part of a panel discussion on binaural sound and uh, you know, asking the question, how far have we come and where else do we have to go? I'm gonna ha- I have to ask you, because obviously you're the expert on this, and it's something that I've, I've never been entirely 100% convinced of, is the idea of binaural beats and brainwave entrainment. Is that something that you've, you've looked into and is it nonsense? So I have um, a number of students, master students, who have looked into binaural beats, and um, you know it's it's really very interesting because there's there's evidence that suggests that binaural beats truly do make um, an, an impact and truly do make an effect on um, on um, how we feel and and change our state. Um, I would say there's a lot more research that needs to be done, mm-hmm. uh, but I would say you know that we we see some evidence that that binaural beats are interesting. Interesting is a nice place to leave it. Agnieszka, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much, Andrew. I appreciate it. Cheers. That's Agnieszka Roginska, and that's the MTF Podcast. Now, if you're interested in attending the four-day-long packed program at AES Virtual Vienna next week from the 2nd of June, head to aes.org now and register. The MTF Podcast is out every Friday, so don't forget to subscribe, and you can also rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd really appreciate it. And of course, you should share this with someone else you think might be interested in this sort of thing, particularly if they're looking at getting into the whole world of audio careers and sound research. I'm Andrew Dubber. You can find me at Dubber on Twitter, and Music Tech Fest is at Music Tech Fest pretty much everywhere. Enjoy the rest of your week. Take care. And we'll talk soon. Cheers.